time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mr. Pepper with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker, or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My uh, guest this hour is... um, the author of a new book called Eddie's Boy. He is uh, a, um, let's see if I get this right, a uh, physician and executive with an interest in the roles that stories play in illness and healing. His newest book, uh, Eddie's Boy, kind of talks about what happens when the doctor becomes the patient. We're going to talk about that a little bit with Dr. Robert Schwab. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on, and I, I thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, let me just check something. There we go. Okay. I had something a little bit wrong with the automation here, and I didn't want it to jump in in the middle of our conversation, Robert. Sure. Um, our, as we've heard, are physicians the worst patients? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'd like to say no since I've been a patient myself, but I think they're, I think it's a unique situation. Um, illness is a very important story for everyone, but I think if you're a caregiver, whether you're a doctor or a nurse or other type of caregiver, it's a very unique situation because of the role reversal element of it. You know, you're used to taking care of other people and suddenly you're thrust into the role of the patient. And I think it's, although I'd like to think that all caregivers can empathize and imagine fully what it's like to be a patient when it's you, I think it's very different. I've had that personal experience during, you know, illness or injury, and I I think it's a very profound experience. You've written about, um, in in your novels, um, your first novel, Holy Water, explored the impact of the French Quarter 
on a young physician's uh, professional development. Backside of a Hurricane, your second novel, is about fathers and their children. Um, and and uh, the wisdom of sitting still when chaos swirls around you. But um, And now you've written a book about a doctor becoming a patient during a pandemic when that, in fact, has been the case. A lot of doctors have become patients uh, because of being on the front line and, and contracting COVID-19. Um, did you write the book during the pandemic, or did it just come out coincidentally during a pandemic? It was coincidence. Uh, you know, I guess I guess it's a, uh, I, I don't want to say it's a happy coincidence, although it does spark interest in the book. You say um, lucky, I, lucky coincidence. Yeah, lucky maybe, yeah, is a better term. I, I started working on this book about four or five years ago, and, and I just wanted to, to uh, you know, wrestle with this idea of what happens to a doctor who suddenly becomes a patient, and particularly a doctor who, like many doctors that I know, uh, defines himself almost entirely by his profession, which I think is a risky thing for anyone to do, whether you're a doctor or whether you're anybody else. It, if you're defined entirely by what you do for a living, what happens when you can't do that anymore? That was really sort of the central dilemma that I wanted to 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 deal with. And then then the pandemic came and suddenly all sorts of doctors and nurses and other caregivers are dealing with that. So it, it, it was a coincidence entirely. Well, and a lot of people from all walks of life have been dealing with that idea of you are what you do. Um, you know, when I introduce you, you know, it's Dr. Robert Schwab. It's, you know, he's yep. a physician, executive. It's it's never, oh, my next guest's a really nice guy. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. No, that's Robert. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm always referred to as a radio host. Everybody's got that, that label, and we identify people with what they do. So how, they, how can they help but identify themselves? As what no, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's cultural. It, it is what we do. And I, I teach a class of uh, undergraduates at University of Texas at Dallas, and I teach a class all about story and why they should care about the concept of story and how it impacts their lives. And my, in the first class, I ask them to, you know, introduce one another. So I, make, I pair them up and have them talk to each other for five or ten minutes, and then one of them introduces the other. And I, I make that point to them, that at their stage in life, they're almost certain to identify themselves by their major. But, but I ask them to think about, is that really essentially who you are? I mean, what are, what are the stories in your life that really define how you view yourself? And for for many, many, and I would say most physicians, it is they are a physician. And there's nothing wrong with that. Being a physician is a wonderful thing. It's a noble profession. I think you should be proud of it. But I think you have to be careful about is that essentially you or is there something else? And I've spent a good bit of my life um, you know, thinking about that. And, and I, I think I'm someone who does not uh, identify themselves primarily by what they do for a living. Uh, there are other aspects of me, and I, I would certainly identify myself, um, if not first, certainly near the top as a writer. Uh, writing is something that's you know essential to me. 
um, being a physician is something I'm extraordinarily proud of, and uh, it certainly works its way into every conversation. But I just think it's a very interesting idea how you identify yourself as a person. How do we identify people differently, Robert? I mean, you know, uh, somebody who's had medical training, who's a doctor or a nurse, they're going to have different experiences than, you know, a guy who's been a musician and a radio host. Um, how do you, how do you not identify yourself in that way? Because it does say a little something about who you are. That's how we got into this rut, if you will. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think you should not identify yourself. I just think that there has to be more to you than just that. Because everything in your life uh, can be fleeting. And certainly your, uh, your ability to practice your profession can be taken away. And again, in the pandemic, look at, look at restaurant owners, look at small business owners, look at people who've had their job yanked out from under them. And and setting aside the you know the the stress of how am I going to make money? How am I going to put food on the table? Uh, who am I? If I can't run my restaurant, then who am I? I think that's something that people would do well to consider. You know, because I believe that at your core there's an essential you that is probably most connected to your family and friends. Uh, the the person that you are is still there, regardless of the circumstances around you. And in my novel, the the doctor Landon Ratliff, um, you know what I try to to portray in the novel is his struggle to discover that. Did um, did you base this on the experience? Well, let me turn this around. I want to ask this differently. You had an experience being a patient. Yes. Did that experience inform this book, and did it inform your own practice and teaching? Uh, no. I mean, I, my, my illness experiences, fortunately, have been relatively uh, minor, nothing really serious until after I started this book. I had already uh, begun writing this book when I had a more serious illness experience, so I'm sure that played into the book, but I had sort of plotted out how this book was going to go by the time I experienced that. But I found that experience to be very profound um, because I think that the, the, the essential um, issue that people need to understand about illness is the concept of suffering. And we always think of suffering as you know, terrible pain and agony, and certainly that is a form of suffering, but but the fundamental definition of suffering is loss of the sense of self, which is why illness is so damaging to us, because we don't identify ourselves as sick people, and suddenly we are, and I think it, it, it makes us look at ourselves, and, and you know, we, we use the term, I'm not myself today, even when you have a relatively mild illness. I know that when I get sick, my family wants to move out because I'm not fit to be around. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I can't do the things I usually want to do, and so I, I tend to get a little bit grumpy when I get sick. And I think we all sense that 
we're not ourselves. And it, it's, it's a good thing for caregivers to clearly understand the concept of suffering because things that we as physicians think are relatively minor, they're never minor to the people who have them. I mean, I had, I had a very routine knee surgery a number of years ago. I had complete confidence in my physicians. I knew what was going to happen, and I was scared to death going into that surgery because I know the things that can go wrong. And so you have to understand that no illness is really minor to the person who has it. And uh, that's a good thing to remember. So I, I, you know, my own experiences were quite profound, um, but I had already sort of imagined this story in my head and I didn't change it a great deal as a result, although I'm sure that some of some of the depth of emotion that I had the character go into reflected my own. When healthcare professionals, whether it's doctors or nurses or paramedics for that matter, end up on the receiving end of healthcare, do they come out of that experience with a, a different perspective on bedside manner? I think so. I I think that you know. What you're, what you're describing is experiential empathy, which is a way of gaining empathy. If you want to understand what something is like and you experience it, you will understand what it's like. And so this isn't a new idea. I mean, many, many years ago, there was a movie starring William Hurt called The Doctor, where he was a real high-powered, hard-driving uh, doctor who was somewhat of a jerk, frankly, and then he got sick. And then he experienced what it was like to be a patient, and it changed him. So, so it's not a new concept, but I think you can acquire empathy by experience. And the other ways you can acquire it is by talking to people and really paying attention. So as a doctor, I used to talk to my patients quite a bit about what's it like to have this illness. I spent My, my career was primarily emergency medicine, but I also spent several years as a palliative care doctor, you know, working with people at the end of life and sitting and talking to them and asking them about how they felt about this experience was very illuminating. And I think I have a much greater understanding and ability to empathize with people who have really serious illness toward the end of their life. But then the third way that you can develop empathy is vicariously or imaginatively through art, through stories, through paying attention, which is what I teach my students is that as you work your way towards becoming a doctor, don't do what a lot of people have done and say, I have to study all this science. I don't have time to read novels and look at art and and watch movies and all that. My response to that is you must continue to do that because that's the way you you develop a, a deeper empathy, which is what patients want when they're sick. Robert, I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Yes, so we sir. Can talk some more? Happy Ex- to do it. Yeah. Excellent. My guest is Dr. Robert Schwab, and he is the author of a new book called Eddie's Boy. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in. Uh, 
or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. More with Robert Schwab right after Everybody's this. doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through. Tom Summer. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with Dr. Robert Schwab, who is the uh, author of a new book called Eddie's Boy, in which uh, a um, doctor finds himself on the receiving end of health care and some interesting lessons to be learned, to be sure. Robert, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make sure. You sit my pleasure. All Thanks that. for having me. Yeah, sorry to make you sit through all that. Anyway, no problem. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, which came first, writing or doctoring, and where does music fit into all this? Yeah, I I think uh, writing came first. I I I can remember as a as a young kid like everybody, you know, having to write poems and things in school and really enjoying it. And I remember writing stories uh, when I was fairly small, and I have a very vivid memory of writing a play for my fourth grade class at my teacher's request and how much fun I had doing that. So I think being a writer came first. In in high school, I, I, uh, I wrote and, and was very encouraged by some good teachers. And then my decision to go into uh, medicine came sort of in the middle of high school, really uh, suddenly without warning. I, I basically was stranded at a cabin on a fishing vacation, and I happened to pick up a book about uh, training to become a doctor, and I was fascinated by it, and I sort of decided then and there that that's what I would do. So so I think writing be, writing came first, and then music was a very late uh, entry. My my father was a good musician, and I, I never considered that I might have any musical talent. I was sentenced to piano lessons at one <laughs> point in my life, and I quit those as soon as I could, and and then I, it, when I was in medical school, I, I, I roomed with a couple of guys who played guitar, and I can remember vividly we had a party uh, one time, and all the girls were hanging around these two guys playing guitar, and I thought, hmm, that might be something I want to learn how to do. So, so I, you know, I, I sort of acquired a guitar and, and got these guys to show me a little bit, and that got me started. And and I've been playing ever since, and I really enjoy music, and I, I play in a band, and I, I have a ton of fun with it. I don't have aspirations to be a great musician. I think that will never happen, but I, I do enjoy it, and, uh, and I'm willing to do it in public, uh, which I think is the key. It's not talent, it's willingness, and I'm willing to do it. So, <laughs> so music's been good to me, and it's really been a nice release for me. I don't I don't look at it the way I look at writing. I, I'm I'm pretty serious about writing and and really want to, you know, hone my craft and get better and better and better. And although I practice at music and I would love to be better, I think I think I'm doomed to be mediocre at best. But I enjoy it. It's a release for me. So I think that's the way they fit together. Medicine was 
something that fascinated me, and, and I'm glad I did it. I'm proud I did it. I, it's been very, very good to me. Um, and, and so those, that's the way the, these things have fit into my life. And now that you're um, focusing in so much on writing, are you a very disciplined writer? Do you work from outlines, or does a, a story occur to you and kind of write itself? In a way. Well, well, I am disciplined in, in one way, and that is that I set aside an hour a day for writing, which is 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. So I get up at 5 and I make coffee and kind of get my cats arranged because they like to, you know, join me in the writing. And I, and I try to write from 5 to 6. And I, I have to credit a life coach back in Kansas City with that because she, I was, I was almost in despair about not being able to devote you know, three or four or five hours a day to writing, which I could not do. I was a father of young children. I was a aspiring academic physician, and I just didn't have time. And so I was feeling like, well, I'm never going to be able to write. And it was her who got me sort of oriented to, you know, you've got to find small amounts of time and, and stick with it. And, and ultimately, I arrived at this 5 to 6 a.m. Uh, schedule. And, and I found that if you do that, you know, over the course of a couple of years, you can write a novel. And uh, if you if you do that, you don't sit around waiting for inspiration. You just go to work. And some days I write a sentence, and some days I write three pages. Uh, but every day I'm there doing it. And, and ultimately, I think that's the the trick to writing. But I I don't use outlines at the beginning. I I like to know how a how a story will start. And I like to know how it's going to end before I really begin writing in earnest. Sure. But other than that, I just write. And then if I get stuck, which happens fairly frequently, I will start outlining. And I'll say, okay, here's where I am. Where do I want to go? And what are some ideas for you know, scenes and complications and things that will move this story forward? Because the middle of the book's the hardest part, I think. And and so I'll outline, and then I'll go back to writing, and I'll often deviate away from the outline fairly quickly. But but that process of outlining sort of organizes my thinking and gets me started again. So I'm a combination. But I, I admire the people who can outline the whole book and then write it. I just am not one of those people. I <laughs> I discover I discover things as I'm writing. Um, are you are you familiar with uh, the the uh, mystery writer who passed away last year, uh, Mary Higgins Clark? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, she told me once that when she first started writing, she was a single working mom, and she used to do exactly what you do. She'd get up earlier than her day required, yep. and she would spend that first hour or two of the day writing. And and I thought I thought of that as you were you were telling me that, and uh, with regard to discipline, I got a big kick out of uh, an interview I heard. It was not one I did, but one I heard was Stephen King, and the uh, interviewer asked Stephen King, um, "Do you write to a muse or to a schedule?" And he says, "Oh, always to the muse." But fortunately, the muse always shows up every day at nine o'clock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, you know, when you start writing. I think all of us fall in love with the idea of being a writer, you know. And you're thinking, you know, there's a 
tweed jacket with elbow patches and a little a cabin and up this. in the northeast. Yeah, and and the reality <laughs> is, you got to sit down, you got to put your butt in the seat, and you got to hit the keys. And a lot of days, you don't produce anything of very much value. But if you do it every day, it becomes a habit. And and you know, the inspiration I think comes to people who are sitting at the computer. It doesn't strike you when you're walking down the street. Not that you don't come up with ideas. I do. But sitting around waiting for inspiration, I think, is is foolish. I think you have to do the work. And, and it is hard work. I'm not complaining about it. I enjoy the hard work. But it's hard work. You have to show up every day and do it. And I, I've been just really pleased that I can show up and do it for an hour and 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 get this get the amount of work done that I've done. I mean, I've only written 3 novels, but you know, to be to have a full-time job and, you know, have a family and and have produced 3 novels in over a period of 10 years is not so bad. I mean, I you know, I I'm I'm proud of that and I think I'm a, I'm approaching retirement age and when I retire, I think I my I will speed up and I might be able to write a novel in maybe a year and a half instead of 3 years and that's great, but it's nice because it doesn't infringe upon my family except I have to go to bed at 10 o'clock in order to get up at 5. And I've learned to do that. I, that wasn't my habit, but I've learned to do it. Um, and it's worked out very well because I also find that once I'm through writing at 6, I can get a half an hour of exercise done every morning, which is you know, obviously good for you. And um, So it works out very well. I've I've come to really enjoy my... Uh, solitary time early in the morning, and it doesn't interfere with the rest of my life. So it's it's been great. Are, are have are there writers that you especially like or feel inspire, or maybe maybe even possibly inform your writing a little? Um, the the one writer who I think uh, I mean my it, it, it's hard to pick a favorite. I have many many writers that I admire deeply. The 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 classic you know writer that i like the best is john steinbeck and that that is almost entire i mean i love his writing but i i particularly love his empathy and sympathy for the common man and uh having grown up i grew up as sort of a middle class to lower middle class guy and i i still identify with the blue collar workers and uh so i think that his writing um really resonates with me for that reason i you know but i love ernest hemingway and f scott f scott fitzgerald writes so beautifully i i love him but of modern writers i i really like um the most recent writer that i've read that i really like is amor tolls who wrote a gentleman in moscow and rules of civility both of which i think are wonderful novels and he writes extraordinarily well um, but I could list, I, I love Larry McMurtry because of his storytelling. I think he tells wonderful stories. Um, I read Charles Portis whenever he produces something. He wrote True Grit, and he wrote what I think is the funniest book I've ever read, which is entitled The Dog of the South. I still, <laughs> every time I reread that, I laugh out loud, even on airplanes, and I embarrass myself because I, I hardly <laughs> ever laugh out loud. But I know it's coming, and I still can't help it. It's a hilarious book, and I highly recommend it. He's a wonderful writer. He creates incredible characters, and his his dialogue is hilarious. I, I just find it wonderful. So 
I have a I have lots of writers. I I really like Tim O'Brien, who wrote a lot of Vietnam stories. I think his his writing is great. And in fact, my favorite novel of his isn't about Vietnam particularly. It's it's about a high school. I mean, a college reunion. Uh, it's entitled July July, and I think it's just a fabulous book. And I I was lucky enough to meet him at a speaking thing and thank him for that book. He was he was a great speaker and. He's a great writer. There's there's lots and lots. I love Ann Tyler. I read as much of her as I can get to. I think she writes beautifully and tells great stories. And all of her stories are set in Baltimore, where she lives. And she's, you know, she's got that sense of place, kind of like William Faulkner when he created his, you know, fictional county in Mississippi. I I admire people who can do that. I've I've kind of moved my books around, you know. Charleston and New Orleans and other places, but um, I admire people who've really captured a sense of place in their books. Well, very often the place can be as much of a character in the book as any of the people. Absolutely. That, that was absolutely true, and it was a goal of mine with Holy Water. I really wanted to write a love letter to the French Quarter because I've been so captivated by that place. And in Eddie's Boy, my new novel, I've really tried to capture a good bit of Charleston, which is another city that I've visited many, many times and really, which, really enjoy. Sorry, which Charleston? South Carolina. Okay. I'm sorry. Because yeah. cause I'm, for, for some reason, I'm more familiar with uh, Charleston, West Virginia. Well, I'm from Virginia, so I, I agree with you, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking of Charleston, South Carolina. And in fact, for both of those books, I, I visited those cities repeatedly, only for the purpose of walking around and capturing more of the setting, because I really like to add little details of the setting uh, to put the reader in the place. I think it I think it makes a difference. I think it makes the story come alive if you're in in the setting and that takes, you know, specific details. So it's been fun to do that. Is is there a moral that the stories you tell um and and the uh the theme that you have in each of your books works toward? Uh there's certainly a theme. Uh I don't I, I I try not to moralize, and so I I don't feel qualified to do that. But there are themes, and and certainly in in Holy Water, the theme was uh, at least one of the themes was how do uh, young physicians define what kind of doctor they're going to be, and it, and by saying that, I I meant not what specialty they're going to choose, but what kind of doctor are you going to be, and what I was trying to convey in holy water was that you know it's the people you encounter in life and your reaction to them that's going to determine what kind of person and therefore what kind of physician you're going to be in eddie's boy um i really as as i i think i've said i i was really trying to wrestle with the theme of um when when the primary way you've defined yourself is taken away from you how do you find out who you really are? That's really what Landon is doing in in this book. And the two books are linked. The Holy Water, it's the same main character, Landon Ratliff. And in Holy Water, he's a young physician in training. In in uh, Eddie's boy, he's middle-aged. And so it, it kind of wrestles with, you know, a middle-aged person is already facing that, existential question i think about you know 
what's my life been and you know here I am 40 years old and what have I done what have I accomplished who am I and then you know for him to suddenly then become a patient where he was the doctor and for him I, I hope I've set it up so people understand that he's really defined himself as I'm a physician uh, then what how do you find out who you really are if you're not if you're not who you thought you were who are you um, and I hope people find it interesting. That's really his struggle, is does, to try to figure out who he is. Does he start out suffering a little bit from what some people would call the God complex? I think so, yeah. I think he does. And, uh, you know, I, al- I always wondered when I saw doctors like that, what are, what are they hiding in that? And and that's sort of Landon's question, too. You know, if 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 you're... If you have this complex about the all-powerful doctor, what's driving yeah. that? I to me, it's always something missing in the rest of your life. I, I can't get sick. I'm the doctor. Right, <laughs> right, right. And so what are, you, what are you covering up? What's that, what is that smokescreen hiding? And that's certainly a big part of Landon's uh, story is what is that what is that smoke screen hiding? And he's he's forced to face that. Where was because your, you take it away? Where was your second novel, Backside of a Hurricane, uh, located? It was located in Wilmington, Delaware, where I've never lived, and also in uh, in the Charleston area too, because that book is centered in some ways around Hurricane Hugo, okay. which hit which hit South Carolina. And the, the, the genesis for that story was really a, an, an NPR story about hurricanes. And I was listening to it driving to one of my son's baseball games, and they started talking about the way hurricanes always spin counterclockwise. And somehow that, I, I started thinking about that, and I thought as it crosses the, the, onto, onto land, the wind is blowing north to south, and as the as the eye passes over and it it begins to hit the backside, it's blowing the opposite direction. And it suddenly occurred in my head that theoretically things could be all blown back to the way they were. Now, obviously, that's not true, but <laughs> but it was an interesting idea yeah, that ended is. up true. Truly, ended up growing into an, a, a theme of you know when things are going to hell around you, it might be a good idea to sit still and wait for them to blow back together. And well, so that, that just, that struck me, and I wrote a story around that. I, w- I was curious about that, Robert, because um, your first novel was set in the French Quarter, and then your second novel deals with a hurricane, and I just wondered if, you know, <laughs> one had inspired the other. Well, not really, although I know where you're going with that. And I, you know, I, somehow or another, weather works into most of my books. And, and I guess I'm, I'm sort of more attuned to weather than, than some other people might be. Um, but, you know, it, it, they, they aren't linked. I mean, I, the, the one did not lead to another, to answer your question. But, I mean, you're, but you're certain... focused on, on the French Quarter, and then all of a sudden it's like, hmm, I wonder if I ought to yeah, do that, something about hurricanes a hurricane. Yeah, there are hurricanes there, too. I've had them, and I, they're not my favorite drink, but I've had them. So there, <laughs> there are hurricanes there. Oh shoot! This is uh, this is fun. Um, so what's what's next, Robert? 
Well, um, right now, it, what's next is what we're doing, which is marketing this book. And I have a great publisher, Warren Publishing, who are based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Is that a little tougher um, during the pandemic? It is. I mean, I've worried about this. And, and to be honest with you, the book could have come out a little earlier than it did. And I asked them to you know, consider delaying it so that we could perhaps you know, latch on to the end of the pandemic and and begin to do uh, personal appearances and things that I really enjoy. I, I like speaking in front of people, uh, talking about the book and signing books and those kind of things. Those those events I enjoy, uh, probably because I've haven't done as many as the you know celebrity authors who probably get tired of them. But I'm not. I, I really enjoy it. So we we delayed the the release a little bit um, and and released it at the beginning of the year instead of the end of last year. Uh, so it is tougher, but I'm doing mostly that. But I am thinking about the next book. And and the next book is is kind of at the stage where I'm just jotting down ideas and maybe sketching out a scene or two or a character or two. Um, not really what I consider writing the book, but just sort of planning the book at this point. And I think toward the middle of this year, when some of the initial marketing crush settles down, I'll probably sit down and begin to write. And so if if the time goes the way it usually goes, it'll take me probably three years to finish the next book. Um, but it's it's such fun for me. I, I even enjoy the research. You know, if I have to go somewhere. I, I kind of know where this book's going to be set, so I'll probably visit that, that location a number of times, and, and I'll have to go on the internet and look up details of things. And But I enjoy all of it. I, I really enjoy it. I think it's it's tremendously fun. And uh, as I said, you know, it's an hour of, of each day, um, and it's an hour that I start my day with and that energizes me and makes the rest of the day better. So, I'm looking forward to the next book, and I, I think when I retire, which if things go according to plan, will be in another co- maybe three years. I hope I'll spend you know two or three hours a day working on writing because I would have time to do that, uh, and I, I'm not doing it so much so I'd be more productive, but to be able to spend more time doing something that I really enjoy doing. So uh, I, I got another book coming. It'll it'll come. Well, we're almost out of time, but I want to, uh, as I always do, uh, give my guests uh, an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about uh, and about your work, past, present, sure. and future. Well, I appreciate it. My um, my new novel, as you've said many times, is Eddie's Boy. Uh, you can get that book on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, or at my uh, publisher's website, which is Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, publishing.net. It will be available in bookstores around the country as we are able to contact them and get them to carry the book, but right now uh, it's probably easier to get it online. If you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, there are uh, uh, a couple of local bookstores who are carrying the book. Uh, in Terabang Books in Dallas will carry it. Um, uh, Monkey and Dog Books in uh, Fort Worth will carry it, and it will be available as well at Books uh, at Leaves Book and Tea Shop in Fort Worth. Um, you can find out more about me at 
www.robertschwab.com. Uh, that website has information about my books, about the talks that I give, has ways you can contact me if you're interested in having me come and talk to a group or do it virtually via Zoom or Teams or whatever you want. Be happy to do it. So um, that's really it. Well, Robert, thanks so much for spending this time with me, and best of luck with uh, the book, which is uh, called Eddie's Boy, and uh, the next book and everything else that you do. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you having me on. I can't tell you how much it means to me. I appreciate your listeners and you, and uh, I just am very grateful to you. It's been a great pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. 
The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. few years, a type of meeting place has grown up throughout the country, which is called a coffee house. There are many uninitiated people who have never been into a coffee house, I being one of them. Uh, we are seated now at a table, across from which is a man uh, who seems rather depressed. Uh, uh, sir, uh, you, you are depressed. Uh, uh, would it be getting too personal to ask you why? I'm not pretty. You are depressed because you feel you're not attractive. I'm not attractive. You're not good-looking. No, I'm not. Well, what would you say, sir? That's why if I'm I... mainly depressed. Well, may I, may, I, may I say something to you, sir? Yes. You are a very attractive person. You're as attractive as nine out of 15 people I know. You're very kind. But you are. You're not you're an unattractive very, person. You're very sweet. But I, I know that the truth, and I face it every morning. You're a good-looking man, sir. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. Oh, 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 I see. Oh, I, I, Listen, I beg your pardon. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to one of the other tables now okay. and see if we can speak. Uh, Goodbye. Thank you very wow. much, sir. Uh, madam. Madam. Uh, there's a gentleman sitting here wearing a pair of Levi's, a nicely laundered T-shirt, uh, looking very much like an actor. Uh, I might describe him as looking like a cross between uh, Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward. <laughs> I, I want to explain that. You do have blonde hair. May we sit and talk with you, sir? Uh, if you are so uh, in your mind, too. Uh, yes. Was I right, sir? Was I right? Are you an actor? Yes, I uh, have to be a uh, lesbian. <laughs> I think, sir, I think you... Can I check you on that? I think it's... Uh, you mean thespian. Well, uh, is that what... Thespian. Thespian, actually. Thespian. Yes, yes. I'll never get that wrong again. <laughs> sir, who is your... Who do you consider the greatest actor we have in America today? The greatest actor in America is Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> She's well, she's a, she's a great actress. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean an actor, actress. I mean that she knows what she's doing up there, you know? Well, who else do you like? Who would you pattern yourself after? I would pattern myself after... I love that picture, The Fugitive Kind. I loved it very much. 
very much. <laughs> so, uh, so you're trying to I tried to uh, be like Brando with my T-shirt and just look uh, very much like Joanne Woodward, who I love very much. I love her. Well, you know, usually when people... I also look a little like the producer. I love him, too. <laughs> Marty Giroux. Is that Mar- Marty Giroux. He produced that picture. You'll notice my shoes are exactly like his. <laughs> I love that picture yeah. that much well, sir, that I, I became everything in it. <laughs> I see. Sir, I think I made a mistake. You're not an actor. No, I'm not an actor, well, I'm but, I'm, but I love to hang out here. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure speaking. Well, it was a pleasure almost to be an actor. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I've got to wend my way through the crowd. Oh, uh, good luck on your wending. <laughs> and goodbye. And if I can do anything for you, you just call upon me, sir. Can I talk to you now? <laughs> no. No. Okay. okay. I understand. You have to go to other people yes. on the record. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. All right. I watched you before in the coffee house. All right, ladies. Goodbye. So long. I hope I'm an actor. <laughs> We're going to a corner of the coffee house now. Uh, on the walls surrounding this table are many, many paintings. There's a gentleman sitting here with a palette, palette knife, some brushes, some oils, and I imagine that he is the gentleman who painted these paintings. Am I right, sir? That is correct in your assumption. And the painting... Uh, you are totally correct. Uh, the painting... And impeccably dressed, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you very much. A lovely tie. Thank you. Gradually blending into the color of your suit. You are always interested in color and design. Color is my life. I am color. Your name is... Uh, what is your name, sir? Corinne Corfu. <laughs> Corinne Corfu. Uh, you are yes. Greek. I hope I am Greek. I would like to be Greek very much. Well, you're, that is a Greek name, and you have a Greek accent. Yes. Well, then perhaps I am. <laughs> well, don't you know your don't you know your derivation? No, I do not know uh, my derivation. Gypsies stole me as a child. <laughs> a band of gypsies. And you were brought up where? I was brought up in the Persian Gulf, right here in Miami. <laughs> It's the Persian Gulf. No, it's a gypsy tea house. The rest Sir, of I, called the Persian Gulf. I would like to talk to you about your paintings. Now, yes, you certainly may. Are, it's my life. Color are, and art. I are, love <laughs> art. They are very unusual. I noticed that... God bless you for your perceptions. <laughs> I noticed one... You also... Uh, you sculpt, too, I noticed. There's Main, some, uh, sculpting and painting. All the arts. Uh, there is a, a metallic sculpture there that is very interesting. Yes, metal, metallic. What do you call that? It's just a series of wires uh, in a grid-like effect. What oh, you, you mean above the door? Yes, what do you call yes, that? Yes, that's called the air conditioning. <laughs> Sorry, sir. I did not uh, make that. No. The, the, the Fetters, the Fetters Company made, but it's very beautiful. Yes. Your paintings are very abstract, I noticed. Yes, but they don't blow air out. So <laughs> that the machines. No. May I ask you about some of the paintings? Yes, you certainly may. That painting there that is entitled The Gull on a Hot Rock. Yes. Now, I don't see anything on that but a bunch of little specks. Yes, well, I saw the girl on a hot rock from over five miles away. <laughs> oh, I see. I was see. standing on a cliff. That's why I painted in the perspective, the three little dots. Now, uh, getting closer, sir, I'm, uh, may I examine a little more closely? Certainly, not too close. Yes. yes. Now, that is not paint, those dots. They look like, that's, those are flies. Yes, sir. they are. They're flies. But you didn't paint that. Those are real flies. No, I took them, uh, caught them in my hand until the air was out of their bodies and they died. <laughs> and then I... Uh, you pasted them onto the... little dots of blue and put them on the dots. And they represent the gold and the rocks. I had to kill them. If I had not killed them, if they were not dead and glued to my picture, <laughs> then I have no picture. <laughs> they fly away, I got nothing, Charlie. I see. I'm in the dark. Well, I excuse you. What are you going to buy? Well, sir... 
May I ask you about this particular abstract? Yes, they're mainly impressionistic, post-impressionistic, yes. pre-impressionistic, and impressionistic. <laughs> yes, this one is more of a, an academician type of painting. No, it's not. Well, for instance, it's very graphic, it's very graphic. Yes, it's it, very graphic, the, it's very graphic. The, <laughs> it's a draftsman-like quality. The spaghetti looks like spaghetti, the limp salad looks like limp salad, and the garlic oh, bread oh, looks oh, like garlic bread. Oh, oh, no, that's not a picture, that's my supper. <laughs> I, I, it happens to be resting on a frame, and in my easy. Oh, uh, that's my dinner, I eat that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. sir. It looks... Do you like... Wait a minute. Do you really like it? Well, it is. Do you think it looks like the a... The composition a is rather... Of, uh, yes, I thought it was thickly painted. I tell you what. <laughs> if you really like it, I can lacquer it up and give it to you for 40 hours. No, I'm afraid, I'm no. afraid I wouldn't want to take your, deprive right. you of your supper, sir. How about just a coffee and cake? <laughs> Maybe not for $20. No, sir. Give I'm... me a dollar and a half for the coffee. <laughs> sir, I'm really not interested. Give me 40 cents you can have. All right, here's 40 cents, sir. All right. Thank you very here's the much. Coffee and cake. Nice working with you. <laughs> yes. I hope you come in again. I will, sir. God bless your can tie. I... I don't want the coffee. No, sir. you want the picture with the flies? No, you just keep Give it. me a dime. <laughs> you can have it. I kill more flies. What the hell is it? <laughs> All right. Goodbye. In a corner of the coffee house, there's a gentleman sitting with a very, very strange instrument on his lap. Uh, sir, may we speak with you? Hello. <laughs> uh, what is your name, sir? May we get your name? Uh, my name is uh, Charlie Grape. <laughs> Charlie Grape? Yes. Uh, do you perform here at the uh, coffee house? Yes, uh, on occasion I do, and then they, uh, they kind of get mad at me, and then I don't. I think I can get permission for you to play for us. I'd oh, like can to... you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I would... It's the first time I've ever gotten permission here. Just kind of... We'd certainly like to hear a sample of your music. Certainly. Let me just get tuned up. I'm trying to find an A here. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Got it first shot out of the box. My A. Now, what are you going to play for us? Uh, 22 men. All right, for the record, 22 men. 22 men, here we Sung go. Sung by Charlie Grape. Here we are. <laughs> I get mainly A out of it. <laughs> well, I don't get more than A out of it. 22 men fell down and hurt their knees. <laughs> Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Twenty-two men fell down, down to the ground. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Would you like to hear the release? Uh, do you have one? Yeah. Now, twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. That's not a release, sir. That's the same as the... Uh, yeah. Bridge. Okay. Okay, how about another completely different song and a new tune? Yes, I'd okay. Can you make it up on the spot? I certainly can. It's my best part. This is extemporaneous. Ex yeah, whatever. When two German soldiers hurt their knees. <laughs> Twenty-two German So I think sir, you know sir, that, too. No, yeah. It's very similar to the other one. Yeah, well, how does it differ? It differs in the fact that the first 22 men were not German soldiers. <laughs> well, is this the a second 22 men are German soldiers. Well, it's the same. Can you, can you play it's the same uh, that they hurt 
their knee. That's right. You caught me there. Yeah. But you sing something completely different. Okay. Completely different. You know, the uh, the Calypso balladeers make up songs right on the spot, topical songs. Yes, they Can do. Can you do that? I'll try to. Okay. Okay. 22 Calypso, man. <laughs> Is that what you meant? No, I meant something topical. Something topical? Yes. I'll try something topical. Let's see what's happening in the world today, here in our great nation. Got it. Big Dick Nixon heard his name. Big Dick Nixon This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 